Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Thank you very much all for joining. In the middle of the day uh, in, uh, in Europe, but uh, early evening or afternoon in Singapore. So I'm very happy to be talking to Professor Puranam, who is a professor of strategy and organizational design at INSEAD in Singapore. And we're going to talk about something which, uh, you know, maybe is on uh, people's mind if they work in financial services, but also if they work in any industry. And uh, let me maybe explain where I'm coming from. 20 years working in, uh, in industry, in consumer goods, and then doing an MBA at INSEAD and then working in financial services. I have seen a number of restructurings or organizational design changes. And frankly, I think it's, uh, the frequency of it is kind of related to the low growth or lack of growth uh, industries in my mind. And sometimes it's obviously driven by personnel changes and things like this. New CEO comes in, uh, all of a sudden you're not focused on uh, country management in, uh, let's say, an industry, but on a category business uh, or in financial services, you change the divisions, again, product or regional focus. What do you do, right? And uh, I spent last 10 years in uh, corporate development in the Credit Suisse in Zurich and in uh, Deutsche Bank in London, where our strategy colleagues have been focusing on organizational design changes, obviously supporting the uh, the changes or the thoughts that came from the board members and, and people like this and giving ideas how to design the organization in a better way. And this is where Professor Fanish and Puranam comes in and his research. And we can talk about how to do it in a better way. Is there a scientific way to this? There, there is a way to leverage data and approach these changes, which are far-reaching, in a way that uh, you should do with the new product development, maybe, or the startup, right? In other words, uh, use the data, use the prototyping, testing, and then, you know, roll out the changes, right? So Fanish came up with his colleague as well with an ebook, which is called Org 2.0. So we're going to refer to it um, uh, a little bit, and you can then read it. It's free and basically summarizes what I just mentioned. So from now on, I think focus is on uh, Fanish. So, Fanish, welcome. How are you today? Very good. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. How's life in uh, Singapore? Not too bad, all things considering. I think the, the control on the pandemic has been pretty good here. So, we don't, haven't had any local cases in the last two, three weeks. So, the numbers are really at zero. And uh, since January itself, we haven't had many casualties. So, on the whole, I think Singapore has come out pretty well. Yeah, that's what I hear. So I wish this was the case everywhere in the world. But uh, let's see. You know, I mean, this podcast idea is all to inspire and learn learn from each other. So that's why we are here. Um, one of the consequences of the pandemic is the restructuring and constant changes in the industries, right? So that's what's going to come if it hasn't yet. So that's why we are talking today. Um, you know, you're the Roland Berger Professor of Strategy and Organizational Design. So 
what has led you to that direction in your research or you know when you were this considering your academic interests and focus so i felt for a very long time and this goes back almost to the time i was a undergraduate student that the technology of organizing which is getting people to collectively accomplish something that you cannot on their own is a profoundly important and basic technology for us as a species right practically nothing we accomplish can be done without organization so all our big technological breakthroughs um, all our major projects even all our not so positive impacts on the planet these are all really the consequences of organization so it is a very basic and profound and very powerful technology if you like a general purpose technology but our ability to actually work with this technology is quite poor and uh, to give you some sense of how poor it is if you look at the research data on success rates for reorganizations post merger integration new ventures within an organization strategic alliances joint ventures almost none of the phenomena i have named have success rates far north of 50 to 60% right so it's not that different from flipping a coin so that doesn't strike you as being very sophisticated right so we we are dealing with a very important basic technology but we are not dealing with it very very well and that's why it's always been something of a fascination and a passion for me to see how can we move the needle on understanding how organizations work and how can we make them work better because that's really i think a, a very basic uh, general purpose technology which all of humanity potentially can benefit from it doesn't have to be in the business world it could be in government it could be in nonprofit so in that sense that's always been the in interest and inspiration more recently i think for the first time we are beginning to see some changes which allow us to really change our toolkit and that change essentially has to do with data i think the expansion in data in the last decade or so as well as expansion in thinking about what is data and what is not and i'll elaborate more on that later have together created a situation now where we can for the first time tackle the complexity of organizations with the kind of tools you need to really tackle it and that hasn't happened in the past so i think these are the two reasons why i'm where i am all right so but why do you think that uh, these sort of people uh, related decisions uh, which are you know um, strategic uh, organizational design decisions by definition were a bit slower in leveraging data and ai versus you know let's say focus on customers and things like this i mean obviously yeah. for all of these fields you you have one factor which is now we have uh, maybe 10 times or 100 times more data than a year ago we have better computers we have gpus etc but uh, but in particular field like this you know we were, we were a bit slower as if uh, people thought well you know when i deal with people i cannot deal with numbers as if it was exclusive but what do you think so if you ask people exactly the question you asked me the usual response often is oh it's a very different culture around people and and hr and that's you know not very number friendly but i'm not sure that explains anything that's just relabeling the problem my own sense is there are two different reasons why this happens one is simply scale so if you look at where and which sectors companies have been very good at using data in their business it's really data about their customers or about their uh, transactions because that data is there in large numbers right so if you're a bank or an fmcg you typically have many orders of magnitude more customers and transactions then you have employees so of course there's a lot more data on customers and on transactions so, so some of it is simply a function of scale right the other is also a function of skill and this is changing very rapidly but historically if you look at the career paths of how you become a senior person in organizational development or in hr 
uh, it doesn't necessarily attract the people who are most quantitatively inclined. Okay, and that's because of the. And I think it was a, it was an appropriate response in the past because there wasn't data, so you had to rely heavily on qualitative skills. But that's changing. In fact, many of the leading tech companies, their people leading HR and people of uh, people issues are actually people who look like ops people or people who look like marketing people. Right? They even call these functions people operations because they are essentially working in a very data-driven way. So I'm not saying that's necessarily a always an improvement, but the trend is clearly shifting in that direction because there is more data. All right. So when you focus on the front runners, right, um, and you've done your research, so how does that data-driven approach to organizational design look like in in practice? Because frankly, I guess in my day, I haven't really seen it. Uh, not that I worked in HR either, but you know, even from a strategic point of view, um, there was there was an analysis on the numbers, on the business, the clients, as you mentioned. But organizational design, you know, I, I didn't see that uh, kind of uh, supported by data mining or data analytics. So when you talk to the front runners in that field, how does that look like? So the easy way to to find good instances or good use cases, if you like, of the application of data to these issues is to look in places in the business where the data is available in large numbers. So where is it available? It's available around hiring. So I think this has been one of the lead adopters across sectors, across fields. But I think if you go today to a HR analytics or a, a traditional org development and design consulting firm, one of the, the basic packages that they will try to serve their clients is the use of analytics to improve hiring. Because hiring is a large sample process, right? So you get lots of data. And uh, you also have technologies around character recognition, around image recognition, around scanning uh, CVs and turning them into essentially digital data. So that's kind of the lesser, the lower tech stuff, which is in the background. But what you do have a lot of is predictive models to forecast whom to hire and who is likely to churn. And a lot of these models are actually repurposed from uh, marketing because these same sorts of models are also used to forecast which customers are likely to churn. But now you can turn them to internal data and apply the same sort of approach. So that's become very widespread. The other thing is the recognition of what is data. So if you think of organizational design data as at the departmental level, then there's not much you can do because you know even the largest company will have a few hundred departments. But if you think of organizational design data as interactions between people, ties in a network, then we are talking about millions of interactions. Okay, I mean, there's a very simple uh, formula in, in, uh, in organizational design called the quadratic explosion. So if there are n people, there will be n into n minus one by two interactions. So it's a quadratic function that climbs very rapidly. So networks produce enormous data. So once you have social network data, um, then you can really start thinking about where are the interactions which are getting blocked? So where are the silos? So the classic org design problem is silos and you can actually see that using this data. Similarly, the classic org design problem is accountability. So you can track how long it takes for decisions to move through the network. So once you turn your, your microscope onto these kinds of data, there's actually a lot. And then finally, the, the other exciting new idea, which I think is very cutting edge, not everybody's doing it yet, but the idea is to try and do some A-B testing on org design ideas before scaling them up. And I'll give you a very concrete example. Right now, there's a huge enthusiasm around agile organizing. Okay, so it's become almost like the flavor of the year, if you like. Okay, so what exactly is Agile? Well, there are different flavors around, but the bottom line is you are talking about cross-functional teams 
which have end-to-end -end accountability for sound layer objective and relatively flat structure. So at most one layer and maybe that one layer is also exercised in a fairly light touch map. Sounds good. How do we know it's going to work in your context? So usually the way we would do it is we would fire it and then pray and hope that it actually works. Okay. But an alternative is one could actually run an experiment to see if it works in the following way. And this I've actually done with, with some companies. So we design a single day workshop. We take your teams and we design an exercise or even a game if you want. You can call it a gamified approach. A game that a team can conduct in about two to three hours, which is meant to capture in a very simplified way what they normally do over a course of weeks. Now, once we have this game structure and we have to validate it, that it's actually capturing what they really do. You can then have teams organize the current way and some teams organize the agile way. And this is randomly assigned, exactly like a clinical trial. And by the end of the day, you can run the workshop, you can collect the data and you can feed it back. So the analogy I give is to a wind tunnel. So if you're building a plane, if you're a Boeing or an Airbus, you're not going to build the first model and take it out into the sky. right? You're going to build the small model and put it in the wind tunnel and gather data and learn from that. And this is the equivalent. So it has its ups and downs. Obviously, a gamified workshop is not anything like reality. But it's a great way to see where the problems are likely to come up. And also, it's a great way, frankly, to get buy-in. Suppose it works really well and people can understand that, yes, there may be issues, but this is powerful. Then the workshop also serves as a way to proselytize the idea. So these are ideas around A-B testing. Right. I mean, and you, you beat me to it. What I wanted to talk about is if you are from a startup community, a lot of people on, on this call are, you know, you are most likely are a believer in the lean, lean startup movement, right? And uh, it, it has a you know clear logic. If you're trying to implement something which is disruptive, then you, you test and then you roll it out in, in full. Similarly here, if you say that the organizational changes uh, end up in failure, you know, at least half of the time, then that means you actually don't really know what you're doing. So <laughs> that means you should do some prototype testing. I mean, you describe what you have done in your workshop, etc. But when you, again, try to pin it on the industry leaders who are in those positions today, they are thinking about organizational changes. Why do you think that uh, there may be hesitation to, to implement such an approach? Is there a lack of, lack of knowledge or is that... Um, just uh, some reluctance uh, because, you know, this is how we've always done it. And, you know, you can also change the narrative perhaps and always claim that um, organization design changes have been successful. There was something else which was unsuccessful, right? You know, the pandemic came in, but our org design is actually perfect if the pandemic yeah. didn't come. So, so why, why do you think this is not uh, as widespread as, uh, you know, as you might think? Obviously, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense. So uh, one part of it is, is simply more awareness, right? So even when you make the analogy to Lean Startup, I would point out that there is a basic difference between what I described in the Lean Startup, which is the counterfactual. There is a control group, right? And I think that is really critical. So in the case of a startup, there is no control group. It's you, you're pivoting and you're making changes. So it's right. going to be difficult to keep some part of you constant and change another part. Uh, what you do, of course, is minimize blast radius and make small changes. So those are all very good ideas. But what I'm describing is one where exactly the way we are testing the new virus vaccines with treatment and control groups and even placebo groups with randomization, that's where you get really gold standard evidence of the sort that you can't dismiss by saying the design was great, but the environment went south, south on us. That can no longer be an explanation, right? 
because the environment affects both the treatment and control. So you've taken account of that. Uh, if you think about it, you could also ask the question you asked me about, why did the 2019 Nobel Prize in Economics go to people who basically just did A-B tests? That's what it was, right? So the, the 2019 paper to Esther Duflo and Gang was for application of A-B testing ideas at very large scale to public policy issues. So it's not a new technology. We know how to do A-B tests for more than 200 years. But I think getting the awareness up to policymakers and the logistics of it, which is not trivial, so I don't want to minimize that in any way, getting buy-in, because in, our, in the example I gave you, the big challenge I face is, what can a single day workshop ever tell us about reality? And that's a perfectly legitimate question, right? But then we have to explain how we worked hard to try and make that game look as close to their context as possible and point out, yeah, this is not reality, but surely it's better than firing in the dark and praying that it works. So this is some information, it's better than none, right? So I think both these things matter. Right. All right. And uh, as we mentioned at the beginning, you came up with the book called Org Design 2.0 with your colleague from Stanford, right? So what is it about? And, you know, we kind of already touched on it, but if you are a little bit even more specific and, and uh, push on the point, how does that differ versus what you have seen um, that practitioners are doing? And, uh, you know, then we can talk about it step by step, but um, on a higher level, what is your approach? What does the ORC 2.0 mean? So uh, just to be clear, ORC 2.0 is actually the name of the elective we, I teach at INSEAD. The book is called Organizational Analytics eBook, and it's about data-driven organizational design. So you, if you could maybe post the link later on the website or something, it sure. should be quite neat as well. So it's a free downloadable eBook. Uh, what the book is trying to do is to be a resource for somebody who wants to play the role of a translator. The translation being between traditional HR people, organizational design and development issues, and data science. Because the marriage of these two, I think, is, is uh, had already started before the pandemic. And uh, if you like, Rudolf, I can, I can talk now or later about why I think the pandemic is going to accelerate this in a way that is quite unstoppable. But uh, I think this is really the, the direction of where uh, people-related decision-making is going to move. But the skill deficit is very large. So the book is really a, a, a quick guide, if you like, to somebody who's working with people-related issues, is interested in exploring how to do it with data, but may have no data science background. So that's the kind of class that we've been teaching at NCAD, where we write all the code, you know, I, I've written all the analysis, my students have uh, helped in this project as well. So the, the students in class basically look at the results of the analysis and make managerial decisions based on that. But for those who are interested, we run tutorials where we actually show them how the code works. So this two-stage approach to hiding the technical complexity, but focusing on the business impact, uh, we found has been very effective. So my co-author on the book is actually a former UCI PhD student, Julian Clement. So he worked with me when he was getting his PhD here. And he took this course over to Stanford three years ago, and he's been teaching it there as well. Uh, so that's, that's the, the general um, mission, if you like, of the book. How do I train translators who can arbitrage between people issues and data science? All right. So I'd like to dive in a couple of things. Uh, you know, what you mentioned also earlier and, you know, it's related to the book. Uh, you said that within that or HR function or organizational de design function, the people have been focusing on using data mostly or they started doing it uh, when it comes to recruitment because that's where the most data is, obviously. now. 
when I talk to people who are looking for jobs, you know, uh, they all hate the algorithms, right? <laughs> and everybody wants to bypass them and, and get to the uh, hiring manager because they think that the algorithms are are not helpful. On the other hand, the recruitment managers, they love it, especially up to a certain level. Of course, mm -hmm. once it's a bit uh, too senior, then it doesn't work that way. But when it's about volume and the uh, number of CVs, you know, they don't want to spend too much time on it. So the algorithms are helpful for them, right? So what is yeah. your view on this? I mean, are they efficient? You know, what is the really the failure ratio? I mean, are they a failure rate? I mean, are they coming up with the good candidates, the best candidates, or is it just a saving time for the HR who uh, sometimes maybe don't want to you know, work overtime because they're not paid overtime, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So so I think the, the the thing that I really want to push is not just the idea that we should use data and algorithms, but we should also generate evidence that they're working. We don't often have that, right? And what I mean by that is when you adopt an algorithm to screen CVs, for example, or shortlist candidates, how do you know it's doing a good job? The only way you can know is by first asking how good a job were the human managers doing? Without knowing that, there is no way we can tell if the algorithm is doing better or worse, right? And that leads to some very strange conversations if you don't have to have that data because one can always point to errors an algorithm makes and say, look, this algorithm stood up here. Maybe true, but how do we know the humans weren't making more egregious errors? So I think the first step in a lot of this really is to first document your current uh, accuracy rates. And there are ways of measuring this. When it's coming to hiring, we could talk about both uh, type one and type two errors. So people we should have hired, but we ended up not hiring. And we can track that, track that by looking at how they did in LinkedIn, for example. If you're applying this to promotion, it's even easier because internal data. right? If it's churn, it's even easier because you know who quit and who didn't quit. So you can look at the type one and type two errors for human decision making, compare it with the algorithm, and only adopt the algorithm if it's actually doing better. And in many cases, it won't. right? This is the other thing that surprises people when they start working with data. Lots of data doesn't guarantee that your algorithms will do better than humans. Because lots of data could just be lots of noise. There has to be some true underlying pattern in the data, which the algorithms can then recover. And often we don't know if it will be there until we try it. So I think the, the first really important step here is, even in the world of simple recruitment, you cannot judge if the algorithm is doing better or worse unless you knew how well or how badly the humans were doing before you introduce the algorithm. So that's kind of step one. Step two is that not all HR problems are equally easy to solve with algorithms. Hiring is actually the hardest. And the reason is very simple. You only have data on the people you hired. You typically don't have data on the people you didn't hire. So this creates a problem called selection bias. It's a very well-known statistical issue that you end up seeing only the uh, censored outcomes. So ideally, you should be tracking people you didn't hire to see how they progressed by looking at LinkedIn or something. Few companies do that. So I don't think hiring is the killer app. I think the killer app is actually diversity, right? I think every company now is serious about solving diversity problems, but it's the conversation is still taking place in a ideology heavy and data free kind of context. But this is where HR data can really be used for good because we can get very clear sense of pipeline. We can see where the attrition is happening, where the gender imbalances are happening. Uh, we can look at the data to see are men and women being promoted at the same rate after adjusting for things like their performance, their qualifications, their tenure, rather than just look at final outcomes. So this is probably the most important application I can see. Churn is relatively straightforward and has been going on already for a long time in the industry. And finally, CV screening. 
which is just the automation of reading the CVs and bringing it down. Um, that's where the cost of gains look very dramatic. But I have no way of knowing whether you're giving up on quality unless you can compare how this new procedure is doing compared to what managers will do. Right. Uh, but I saw something which I found very intriguing in your book, which is uh, one of the solutions to these problems. You know, you mentioned uh, could be uh, hiring or random hiring. So, you know, how would that look like? Because uh, if there are some bankers on the call, they probably would freak out. Like, you know, you're telling me that I go to the train station in Zurich and I hired the first 10 people passing by and see how that goes, um, you know, they would say that uh, you must be insane. So how does that work? What's, what's yeah. behind the idea? So the idea is very simple. The idea is humans and algorithms both in the end learn in the same way. We learn from past data, okay? Except in the case of humans, we don't call it data, we call it life experience. And instead of algorithm, we have this thing between our ears. But in the end, it is really the same thing. It's past data is where you draw your inferences from. Now, if your past data is biased, Right? Suppose in the past you've been only hiring people of a particular ethnicity or a particular gender or something, and you use the algorithms to train on that data and then use them to make predictions on whom to hire, it is guaranteed that you will reproduce the biases in the past. So you don't have that data. So every time data is collected with a biased filter in mind, that data is not going to help you escape the bias. That's the basic problem. So how do you break that? One of the ways you can break it very easily is conditional on people being above the bar, right? So I'm not saying people up off the station platform. I'm saying in the shortlist, right? You might have stopped at 20, expand the pool up to 50 and pick randomly. And you'll be surprised. This has actually happened. There's a very well-documented case of a medical school in the US, which accidentally sent out admission letters to about you know, a couple of hundred students that they actually were going to send out rejection letters to. <laughs> right. so effectively, they ended up coming, showing up on campus and it was too late. And people have tracked their data very carefully over time. And not only is there no significant difference between those who are issued rejection letters or supposed to have been issued rejection letters, but actually got admitted and those who are always going to be admitted in terms of outcome, but in some cases they did better. So I think the reality is that whenever we rely on our experiences or past data, we are relying in some sense on past biases. And the way to break free of biases is to randomize. Okay, And we use randomization all the time. So when I say random, I think people are a bit nervous because they think immediately of fooled by randomness and things like that. But we can also be enlightened by randomness. right? And there are at least these three ways in business we do it. So the one idea which everybody knows is random sampling. So randomization is our friend because it helps us create representative samples. So when I'm trying to understand what's going on in a group of 1,000 employees, I don't need to talk to all thousand. I can talk to a hundred. And if I sample them randomly, then they are representative of a thousand. So that's randomness acting for us. Uh, randomization is crucial to A-B testing, right? What we just discussed a couple of minutes ago. So unless you randomize who gets the treatment, you can never tell if the treatment is really causing an effect. And this is one of the reasons why these attempts sometimes fail in the real world that I have some new organizational design. I want to pilot it. Where do I pilot it? I pilot it in the 10 places where I'm most confident it will work. Okay, so any data you get from such an exercise is garbage because it won't tell you how it will work when you put it in a place where it's not likely to work. So again, you need randomization. And what I just told you about hiring at random is the third way in which you can be enlightened by randomness, which is break past biases by taking actions inconsistent with them. Okay, and uh, maybe I close on that point by giving a simple analogy to the idea. Uh, suppose there are some new restaurants in your neighborhood. 
okay and you visit one and you really like it and you keep going to that one again and again and again uh, you're happy going to that one but unless you explore unless you at random try some of the other restaurants you may never discover that there are actually other restaurants better than this one because you've been trapped by your past experiences so randomness is a way to escape the shackles if you like of your past experiences does it make sense yeah yeah absolutely i mean i was thinking about examples in the in the pandemic you know when you cannot travel maybe now you learn your city the like you never learn yeah. about your city that like you never did before you know maybe if you're in singapore now by now you know every single street in singapore right uh and before you would just uh, fly to to vietnam for a weekend or something so True. True. so that's that's a different story i mean uh, just one little challenge to people on the call if you do have questions at this point you kind of know where we are headed uh please uh raise your hand or you know ask the question or put it in the chat of course we have more questions lined up for fanish but i think um, many of you worked in uh, large organizations some of you then transitioned to startups and you building up you scaling up right so as well how do you do it efficiently so that um, uh, so that it works and it's suited for the purpose right um, just like you are uh, testing the products etc on the clients or services um, you see that uh, you should probably do it with your own organization as well right um you know how else to do it so anyone if you have questions please uh, submit submit or or just uh, you know tell us in the meantime i would move on to slightly something different and you know um notoriously known as well the success rate of m&a transactions and the success rate was way below 50% right i mean i would say maybe 15 or so now i think that there is a logical explanation to it because you are looking at the external target it's kind of like a used car you don't really know what's under the hood right you're trying to allocate the risk between the parties and that's why you do due diligence and you have big contracts and all this but um, oftentimes you know it doesn't work out uh, many people say the main reason is for many industries a cultural misfit and then how do you um, how do you try to avoid that right uh, well first of all awareness as you mentioned and recognizing it but then because it's a people's topic then do it in a kind of a people's manner meaning meet the key people as much as you can create some sort of rapport and things like this now whether that worked or not that's a different story right but i think you also in your book uh, alluded to it like how can you use uh, data and analytics not only for the internal in, uh, internally focused initiatives but for the mna so interestingly a lot of what i will say about mna integration also applies to internal reorg because in some sense an mna integration project is just really a gigantic reorg problem within one legal entity because now the merger is being done but still two different organizational cultures so that's really the the core now uh, there are at least three kinds of applications i want to highlight here first is simply the question of after a merger how do you figure out who's most impactful right not every employee on either side is necessarily equally impactful and equally critical to retention so how does one figure that out and that's often the driving force for many mergers because the cost savings are the primary basis on which justify the premium right the revenue synergies are highly uncertain so the cost synergies are often going to be driving most of the Uh, hope of recovery of whatever control premium you paid up front so how do you figure out like if you are aiming for some restructuring how do you know who to keep and whom not to and often it takes very long to figure that out through interviews and careful due diligence 
by that time the best people have left okay because they are the ones who will get outside offers as well so this is where hr data can be super helpful so if you know how to look in the data for the distribution of performance across employees and track who's been doing consistently well who has the largest client network who's uh, who's sales interactions and business development activities show the richest portfolio of networks this can be a very simple thing which if the data is there in the target you should use it second little less obvious central so who is central and who is impactful are often not the same thing so some people may not be the highest revenue producers or the highest you know uh, people booking the highest revenue or new orders but their presence is critical to the functioning of the group because they act as the social glue of the system so how do you figure those people out the way to do it is to figure out what is the social network of interactions between people now in the past the only way to have done that was to send out a survey right and that's like a very very difficult exercise to pull off but now what we can do is we can actually scrape the data on email traffic so i have seen projects where people look at the email server data and there is no violation of any confidentiality you don't need to read the email all you need to see is the pattern of connectivity so who are the people who are most often connected with each other and uh, use the data ethically transparently and honestly but effectively using that network to figure out the central actors and then you prioritize the retention of these people and you get them on board and they help with the post merger integration so that's on them the third one is on culture itself which is not the same as networks and here i'm going to refer to the work of one of my other phd students who's now professor at london business school ariana marketing so what ariana and i have been doing for last 2 3 years is we did an agreement with glassdoor the website which yep. aggregates employee reviews because we think it's a fantastic basis of data on culture because what you're seeing is hundreds in some cases thousands of employees writing these paragraphs of text describing what they like or dislike about their company and glassdoor collects both which is what makes it very powerful we see both what they like and what they dislike about their organization culture and we use a machine learning technique called topic modeling where we can put a huge volume of text and chunk it into some core themes so what we're doing is we're finding how strong the culture is of a company by seeing to what extent the people in that organization all talk about similar themes or talk about very very different themes so is the culture fragmented or is it relatively strong and homogenous we can measure that in the data and what ariana then did was uh, when a merger is announced she takes all the data on glassdoor of the target all the data for the acquirer puts them together as if they were one company and assesses how strong the culture will be which is really a way of checking cultural compatibility and in her dissertation work she was able to show that this can actually predict the capital markets reactions on the day of the announcement right just if you had this data you can explain an additional 4 to 5% variation so that was pretty promising because i think you know it can give you a tool that can help you do partner selection because that to me is like one of the most useful things you can do to improve m&a success it's not about changing the culture of the partner it's a bit like marriage right you you're not going to change your spouse so you want to be extra careful about selection so it's the same here as well the culture is not going to change that much in the target i think but you can be careful whom you're buying and this sort of data can be very powerful great i love it i mean it uh, you know would make me feel more powerful and uh, you know less like you're flying in the dark right uh, when you talk about culture and the people's matters i mean uh, you know in the past uh, the only solution for this was uh, some sort of compensation incentives models and um, and anyway they were always so tailor made that it was very difficult to reuse them and to draw any conclusions and predictability and things like this so 
So that's great. I mean, uh, all right. I mean, let's uh, focus on the practical matters. In other words, let's say if you have a learning or or organizational design leader or you know HR leader or an integration leader who says, well, I've read this book and I took this course, uh, you know, from inside and now I'd like to implement it. So what would be your advice to, to, uh, to, um, to tell people, like, how do you sell it to maybe the managers who, you know, been doing it for a long time, they haven't relied on data, maybe they relied on gut or experience, as they call it, right? So how would they be able to sell it internally? So I think the most important thing to do, and most managers actually do this intuitively very well, you want to pick your battles. So I don't expect any of my students, whether execs or MBAs or readers of my book, to go back to their companies and become champions of data-driven design. That's not their job. What they have to do is pick the one project which really solves a key business problem in their company. And this will be different for different companies, right? You have to pick something that is really a pain point. So in some companies, maybe you are uh, suffering from a higher than industry average attrition problem. If that's the case, then we know exactly what tools to use. In another company, the key pain point for you might be diversity. Maybe the, the stock markets are hammering you and the analysts are giving you grief about this. Or maybe your employees are giving you grief about this. So then again, we know what to do. We can tell you exactly what kind of data to go for and how to go about analyzing it. In yet another context, it might be how do I set up remote collaboration structures? Right? We've all switched to working remotely. What's the best way to create teams? How do I make sure the team still has a team spirit and a culture when they don't see each other face to face? So I would say pick the one business problem that really matters to you in your context. And you will find by looking through the book enough use cases to see by analogy how your particular business problem would be tackled with data. Right? And once you have that, then I think it's really a question of scoping out the problem, seeing what data you have or need to gather and the rest of your data scientists can do. Because the actual technology for doing this, the algorithms itself and the machine learning and the AI techniques, they're pretty standard by now. And most of them are even open source, right? So we use pretty much open source tools. So I do all our coding in Python. We don't have to pay anybody anything for this. It's all available for free. Right. So I think the message is, as one of my bosses uh, said in the past, you know, pick your battles, right? Uh, don't fight everything. and. Uh, try to become a champion of new technologies. It's also meant to be a solution to a particular problem, right? So, exactly. so num sort out your pain points and attack, tackle them. All right, good. Uh, we have a question from Valentina. She's a recruiter in, uh, you know, in Switzerland. And uh, basically she wrote that um, they are using LinkedIn and Zing to attract the candidates. But uh, actually, even though maybe candidates are... Uh, uh, complaining they don't get through through this uh, the, the, uh, from her perspective 95% of those candidates are not relevant so mm -hmm. for her to be able to find the right candidate she needs to spend hours and hours to find the right person manually anyway uh, is there anything that you could do as an organization or a recruiter to attract these uh, relevant people um, you know, passively, right? Um, so they come to you and they are the right people. I mean, they apparently they played with the keywords and the, you know, how to write the ad and still 95% of the candidates uh, they feel are, are not relevant. So it doesn't work for them. And the traditional way of, you know, doing the research and calling up people is the only way to go. So is there any way to change this? So um, it's a tough problem. I don't have like a ready-made solution without digging deeper into your particular case. But here's one data-based approach you might think about, 
you might want to try and figure out what is it about the company that attracted those who did join and are the right kind of employee. Right? So this is basically a kind of segmentation technique that we also use a lot in marketing. So we know the right kind of people, the right sort of employees who did join and who you were happy with. If you can understand what attracted them, then from that one can reverse engineer what one might need to do to attract others like them. So normally what we would do is we would look at the profiles of these people who you think are the right sorts of candidates and then use like a machine learning algorithm to find what is called the nearest neighbor. So find other candidates who look like these individuals. So these are digital twins, if you like, and then target them. So this would be the active approach. The passive approach would be one where if you can understand better from these individuals, why they came and you were happy with them, and maybe also interview a few people who did not come, who you would have liked to have joined and try to understand the differences between them. That can then become a basis for changing your keywords approach, right? And I think by the way, keywords approach is an area where A-B testing is absolutely possible. You literally have to run different campaigns on different websites at different times and try out not one, but 20, 30, 40 different alternatives and gather the data and see which one is working. I mean, this is what all the online marketing guys are doing anyway. So I think some combination of these things might be a data-driven approach. Right. Um, even to follow up to follow up on this, as, as job seekers, they also, I think, they don't like the keywords because uh, you would think that um, a human manager can do a trade-off better, right? Because you have 10 keywords on LinkedIn, you either fit 10, or 10 of them or 9 of them, and that's that. Not all of them are equally weighted, right? So, I mean, even with these algorithms, I don't know why uh, LinkedIn and others cannot do it and basically give weights to this and do some sort of a trade-off very simply, right? I mean, I suppose the, the weights won't be universal. So the real reason they won't do it is because the weights will not be universal. They'll be company-specific. So what works for you may not work for a different context, right? So in that sense, you have to do it yourself. Um, the other thing one can also do is if your current employees are on Glassdoor, you might want to see what they've written. Because I don't know if to what extent this applies in your context, but I suspect that um, potential employees are definitely reading those. And that's either a turn-off or it's a turn-on. So that is something that one might want to think about also to, to play with, to try and attract the right sort. Actually, that is a great, great point because I, you know, I, I do look at Glassdoor and I think everybody does. And I think the best employers, even if they get negative feedback, somebody from the company responds to it. Right. Yeah. So that's the first thing. I mean, I don't think that they try to uh, bribe the, the reviewers and take it down. Uh, there are also companies like this, uh, but I, I think most of them, they just try to respond it and, and get better. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. All we right. Look at that data very carefully. And, you know, there are all the usual problems. So who writes these reviews and who writes enthusiastic reviews? Either people are very happy or people are very unhappy. But that's the same like with restaurant reviews. And again, statistically, we know how to deal with this. So what you do is you throw away the tails of the distribution and only look at the center, right? And you still can get a lot of insight out of this. So these are pretty proven technologies on how to deal with this. Right. And I guess in the restaurant, you can, or when you travel, you can reduce friction so that you get the survey quite easily. When you go through security, right, you have three buttons to push, uh, you know, happy, unhappy, something in the middle. And you don't need to fill in the survey and give them your email and address and your uh, grandmother's maiden name or something like that, right? So uh, that's clear. All right. Well, I don't know if anyone has other questions. Uh, maybe one last uh, challenge to people. Um, 
I know that some are in M&A, some are involved in the integration. Um, anybody that has a question, uh, please pose it now. Otherwise, in any case, I will post again the link to your first your, to your blog post on Inside Knowledge. Second, the book as well. It's an ebook which is downloadable instantly. It's free and basically gives you a bit more color on what we discussed. And we try to use this discussion recording to, and turn it into a, a shorter version of uh, audio a podcast or a video, just a bit of a highlights to give a bit uh, of benefit to the people who actually made the time and they joined us. Um, I know it is uh, it's never ideal time across the time zones, but frankly, pandemic uh, has one benefit that you can talk to people like Fanish uh, from Singapore uh, otherwise, it would be very difficult to to get into Zurich uh, for for an hour or chat or something like that. I bet, right? Let's uh, keep a conversation going afterwards. I think you know we'll be able to reach the and spread the word to uh, more people as well as I mentioned. And uh, have a look at the book. Have a look at the courses that are coming out. And uh, I'm not doing a sales pitch here for Insead, but I I do coach a couple of courses and more exciting courses are coming up online. So if you still at home, you know, and it's daunting and uh, you're tired by this, but, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, the same for everyone, but you can, um, but you can obviously uh, learn something. And then when we come out of it, you'll be a lot smarter and, and, uh, and get ahead. So thank, thank you very much again. Thank you. Maybe before going, if it's okay, I want to take a minute and throw sure. a thought at your group here and see what they have to think about it. They don't need to respond now. You can write me later. So I'm working on this idea, which would be interesting to see how you react to, which is we are going to see some fairly permanent changes in how organization designs look. And I trace the change to basically this simple idea. Three things have happened because of the pandemic. First, we've all learned that we can do a lot more work distributedly than we thought we could. Right? So distributed working is not new, but never at this scale. And now we actually realize that many things we thought couldn't be done except face-to-face -face can. So distribution is the first effect. Now, a consequence of that is we, for the first time, have amazing data on what happens inside organizations. Because everything that happened in our organizations in the last 10 months happened online. So we have complete records now of meetings, of transfer of files, length of chats. So depending on how the uh, data protection rules work, what is the ethical guidelines, there is a data mine waiting to be mined here. So the use of algorithms to exploit this data, I think, is just going to skyrocket. And that leads to the third outcome, which is if a lot of managerial work is going to be taken over by data-driven algorithms, are we bound to see a flattening and a reduction of hierarchies? So that's my question to you. The, the three big trends I'm seeing are distribution of work, digitalization, and delayering. And I think these things are very tightly connected to each other because data is central to this story. So I, I would be curious to hear if you think this is the trend you are seeing. Why or why not, and what other alternatives they might be to experience? Thank you. And any takers to uh, to bet on delayering? You know, I I'm really tempted to cold call somebody that I know. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I I'd like people to think about it some more. They can respond later whenever they like. Yeah. And, and I also want to make sure that I'm being very clear. I don't think delayering necessarily means more autonomy. Right? The, the, the irony here is you may see flatter structures, but with much more control, almost panopticon levels of control because of the way data is going to be used. So I don't necessarily see this as a uniformly positive thing. We have to work hard to prevent the 
the uh, the iron cage of control becoming too tight here i think that's also an important aspect of the story right i think you know what you mentioned about distributed work obviously that works and i think it's been happening over the last 10 years but it's been massively accelerated everybody talks about it and it's absolutely true the data that are available from all these meetings i haven't thought about it but it's a great uh, opportunity for you i think to do more research because what was happening offline was very difficult to track right. and how you can do it uh, even on a meta level metadata kind of level and delayering i'm not sure i think for me the bigger problem is the the lack of growth or or not right so if you if you are in an industry where you grow single digits or this year maybe you don't then you turn to cost cutting right and then in the which question, case you get delaying anyway right so you do the delaying anyway whether that's because of the pandemic or whatever else now the question is how much of that can you do without the the data now we talked about it how you do it with the data another angle of, for me is because i come from finance background is that once you uh, reach the potential of these kind of uh, top down uh, restructurings or one, once you reach the limits of it then all you can do is start bottom up so i've seen it in some fmcg companies in terms of finance what that means is they turn to zero based budgeting so basically, they kind of uh, use this uh, build up every single day. You need to justify what you do, what you spend it on, rather than some bursts of reorganizations and restructurings and all this, which often are very rough. And it's yeah. kind of like with the lockdown without tracing and tracking and testing, right? You, yes, uh, you know, it has impact on mobility, but you don't know much more. So, exactly. so let's hope uh, we'll see. Delaying is going to happen. Eric here is commenting that will only happen with relevant changes to corporate culture. That's also, you know, maybe related to generational change, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, let's think about delaying using the data based on remote working. You're respecting respecting the privacy laws, of course, and things like this. And That's I'll cool. post uh, about your ebook. And uh, you. you know the and obviously follow Fanish on on LinkedIn or check out his courses whether you want to do an MBA executive MBA or online courses if you have time there's so much we can do better and uh, you know now that we have the data and uh, some knowledge hopefully we'll do so thank you very much Fanish thank you very much it's been a pleasure bye bye thank you for listening to Voice of FinTech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.